Welcome to the Drug Futurisms Podcast, where we give you the space time to imagine different and possible drug worlds. We talk to drug policy experts, from drug users and activists to academics, and ask them the question they so rarely get to answer, what could a better future hold? Welcome to the Drug Futurism Podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, just um, for uh, folks who'll be, you know, tuning in, um, uh, this episode's kind of just um, is going to be more of a catch-up episode. Uh, we're just going to talk and see how things have kind of been going, um, as well as you know, maybe just jam a little bit. Um, just because, yeah, a lot's been kind of going on. And so we figured this a was a lot. good chance. Yeah. To kind of digest. Because we've had so many, I mean, not so many. We've had three amazing guests so far. And it feels almost like you need to stop and, like, digest all of the amazing content that they've, you know, put out there for us. Um, I mean, I have to say, I think that, like, so far, drug futurisms has really kicked off to be so amazing and like so much more amazing than I even hoped it would be. Like, I think it's the insights and the ideas and the minds that we've been able to talk to have been amazing. So I'm really excited so far. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it's a little, um, it's been kind of cool because you just like, you get to talk to the people that like we've talked to just people that I, I really I find are really cool. And I was like a bit mm-hmm. of a loser, or at least it's how I conceive of myself. Um not uh, at all. It's <laughs> it, it's kind of it's kind of nice to be able to have a conversation um with, with some of these people. Um uh, you know, uh, I feel like we've covered a lot of different kind of ground. And I, I think also like we've started to see, you know, how to ask, what kind of questions to ask and figure, started figuring out formatting. Yeah. Um, a little like we're bit. Kind of um, catching the flow and getting used to it. It's gotten easier and easier. I think I love our new game. I hope that we continue that. I was just thinking yesterday. So the game for those who didn't listen to Garth's episode yet, is would you use this drug where we can introduce sci-fi drugs, like fictional drugs from movies, film, books, and discuss them and ask our guests, would you use oh, this drug? Oh. oh, yeah. So one thing I do want to say is that if you haven't listened to Garth's episode, go listen to that before you listen to this. Yes, yeah, spoiler um, alert. I don't know why, why you want to hear us talk over listening to Garth, <laughs> because after, after that... Um, after that, I felt like when we were editing it, it was just, uh, I, I almost was nervous that we were just going to have a bunch of clips put together of Garth speaking <laughs> um, because I, I I could not handle my own, my own voice. <laughs> um, and it just, everything he said was so good. And you're like, why would we include everything. this content? <laughs> it was so hard to edit. It's like, none of this should be cut. It's all great. 
Um, but yeah, so go listen to that because we are going to discuss the prior uh, episode. So, you know, you don't want all of that wonderfulness spoiled for you. But yeah, so we have a game where we ask, would you use this drug? And I was watching C-Lab last night and I was like, we need to ask about Stimutax at some point. Do you ever watch C-Lab? Stimutax? No. Yeah. So, yeah. So in in C-Lab 2021, they have an episode with a drug called Stimutax. And I think it's supposed to kind of be a nod to meth, maybe. Like it makes people like really high energy and really confident. Um, but it turns out that the reason why you feel amazing and euphoric and have a ton of energy is because it's a toxin that's causing brain damage. <laughs> and then um, things go downhill really quickly. But, you know, for a while, while you're able to stay on Stimutax, you really do feel like the very best version of yourself. So I thought that would be a good one to mention. See, now you need to go watch C-Lab 2021, Alex. You can get right, it. Like, so right now... Um, I'm just in the middle of uh, of rewatching all of uh, Stargate SG One, um, nice. uh, nice. which I, and uh, I'm not going to talk about this too much, but just because I, I want to recognize the reason that we were behind on uh, the previous episode was because my dad passed away, uh, and my the reason I'm rewatching Stargate SG One is that this was the TV show that kind of got me into into sci-fi um and it's also the show that i used to watch with my dad all the time uh and so um i there will be a lot of stargate related um drugs is just a, a a head nod um to that but it's also an incredibly long show so i'm uh, i think we're on season five which means we're halfway through sg1 and then there's atlantis after that and then there's stargate universe like there's a whole lot of stargate to watch here <laughs> <laughs> Seventeen That's a really years of TV. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea it was on for that long. Well, Bonkers. it's like SG wants ten seasons, and then um, Atlantis is five, and then uh, Universe is two. I guess the whole universe of Stargate. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm glad that we were able to just hit the pause button so you could spend time with your family. So sorry that that happened. Um, and that sounds like a really kind of lovely way to have a positive and, and happy memory of him. So I'm glad you're able to do that. And I'm glad that we took time off for Thanks. you. Yeah. I know. I'm sure that everyone understands had nothing yeah. but positive <laughs> feedback when we said that we needed to take some time. So thank you yeah, all no, I- to our, our listeners and supporters too for the patience. And I'm sure it's clear why we needed it. So thanks for that, y'all. Yeah, like one of the the things that I've uh, kind of trying to be, or sorry, one of the things that I've been trying to sit with um, in this is just the. Um, I, I found that the first in our first two interviews, and not not that it's anyone's fault. It's just like we're kind of learning this as we go. Um, it was really hard to like pull out futures sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and, and part of me like almost wonders if that's just because. Um, you know, these, um, sorry, my brain, (laughs) part part of me wonders if the reason that that's the case is just because like, you know, the future, like future kind of goals can feel very different depending on where you are. Yeah. Um, you know, like what looks like the future, uh, can be very different depending on, um, place, uh, here. 
and just like your general social context too. It's just, this is such a hard thing for people to imagine. I mean, which is why I'm glad we're doing this podcast, but yeah, it looks very different for very different people. And some people I think are in a better position to be able to imagine a positive future than others. So that's definitely been a problem, but I mean, it's also interesting and, you know, it's interesting to see a lot of uh, historical context informing the future, like not only where we are headed, but where people hope to be headed. Like that was, I think what uh, something that really emerged as a theme when talking to Garth was how, you know, really everything that has to do with the drug war and prohibition and the pain that it's wrought has gone back to this ugly history. And it just kind of keeps recycling itself, this kind of, you know, colonial context and capitalist context that just keeps going and going and going. So in a lot of ways, it really does inform the future. I think, yeah, like the, the, the history is like kind of shape, you know, what, what feels like it's possible to, I mean, uh, I know, uh, from talking to friends, um, in not just in, in the United States, but also in, in Canada, like people are very sick of hearing about Vancouver all the time, which I, which I totally understand. <laughs> um, because it's like, well, Vancouver had in, has insight, Vancouver has this, and, but, but, and, but part of, the reason that, um, you know, something like Dolph is able to occur is because of these, you know, like long-term community connections and also this, um, this history, right. Um, uh, that like, you know, might not be as, uh, not feel like it's as possible. One of the things, you know, Garth wanted us to kind of take away from that is that it's not just a thing that could happen in Vancouver, it could happen in other places, but, you know, there's a lot of work that actually has to go into, not that activists in other places are not doing work to be clear, but that just that they're, you know, um, that's kind of been built up and worked over for a long kind of time. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. I think with the, the history thing, like the, um, the history kind of also, uh, even before this podcast, actually, sorry, the, the I think with, in terms of the history thing, um, uh, there's also um, some challenges sometimes with you know um, not not knowing history or not that either of our guests are like that, but um, I think sometimes uh, you know maybe people got involved like during the overdose crisis, and so you're um, maybe not as aware of. Kind of these other histories that have happened in in the past um mm-hmm. or um your histories are just kind of uh you know you're drawing from different kind of um backgrounds to make your histories right so yeah. in uh in, in like the episode with, with you know with, with with sheila right like she's drawing on this history of um social work um and like abolitionist uh activism um, that, you know, comes from, you know, uh, black women, um, activists, you know, and, 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 you know, um, civil rights movement, uh, activists, um, you know, and that, that's kind of where it get the, that, 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 that's where that, the, the, how the history like shapes what one is thinking about and doing, um, in the present, mm-hmm. um, as well. Yeah, no, agreed. I think that's another 
I think, you know, Sheila Vicaria's interview was another really good example and definitely Garth's great example of the importance and the, the ongoing relevance of intersectionality in these conversations too. Um, how, you know, to our detriment, we ignore that and not fully seeing these intersections of social relevance when we're talking about drugs and harm reduction misses really crucial fundamental points to the history of the fundamental, or I'm sorry, to the history of the drug war and the history of harm reduction. If we don't really understand, for example, that it was, you know, there's racism and the need to, you know, silence and oppress groups that were seen as inconvenient and agitating, you know, if we don't realize that we don't really get what we're fighting against when it comes to the drug war. So, um, you know, I think that was something that Sheila did a great job of bringing up. And um, one of the things that she's really been vocal about has been social work's place in like, you know, working against police brutality of, you know, black people and people of color, for example, um, and the importance of, you know, recognizing and hearing those voices in the harm reduction space. So I think that's been another like unsurprising, but very consistent theme that we've seen coming back over and over again from our guests. Um, and it's interesting because I think if you get out into like the treatment space, if you get into people that consider themselves to be, you know, experts in treating people, maybe in the clinical space who use drugs, that's something that's lost really quickly, I think. Um, so, you know, I really hope that this is something that can continue to spread from, you know, our circles and the people that we know who are really open and embracing of this idea of intersectional intersectionality. And I hope it continues moving outward because that's really one of the major keys. Something that Dr. Marina did a great job with. Yeah. <laughs> one of well, my I, favorite, I, I, sorry, oh, sorry, I was going to say one of my favorite, you know, um, social justice aware physicians out there. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking about that in terms of Brian's because we, in, in some ways we, we've covered like three, um, three different histories, right? Um, mm -hmm. So going back to the conversation with, um, with, with Ryan, like the, you know, like the, the, the different history that we covered there, you know, was grounded in this, um, uh, Paracelsus quote, like the, the dose makes the poison. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and so what we ended up talking about there, you know, like, uh, we talked about what, like the, the history of nitrous, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, uh, William James, um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, like we we brought in um, this conversation around. Um, we brought in like this conversation around like you know fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. Uh, so we were having like a much more um, toxicology, uh, you know, kind of conversation, right? Um, and that that's like a different kind of history to. Um, to be bringing in than we did, you know, with the, you know, with our other interviews, which, you know, focused on, uh, you know, the history of prohibition, um, the, like the, like the history of abolition and also like a very personal history with, with both, well, with everyone, but with, I was thinking in terms of 
Sheila and Ryan, you know, their kind of experiences of um, becoming part of this, um, becoming part of this space um, as well. Yeah, I, I feel like we, we touched on it a bit, but um, so just to go back to that, what and whose future is very placed, um, you know, it's, it's always so interesting to think of, you know, that there are these uh, different kind of trajectories and histories like into, um, into harm reduction and into these spaces. Um, I, even thinking kind of more broadly, right? Um, something like, uh, what I, I like to do or what I've done, like my, my research around is, you know, like drug checking technology, drug checking technologies and, uh, these, you know, various, um, you know, the history of like science and technology, something I, I find really interesting. Um, you know, like for a long, a long time, this was, um, this was a, a future for us. Like it was a thing that existed in Europe. And, you know, we had the, the reagent test kits, uh, just like it in the States. Uh, you know, we weren't really allowed to do them at events. Um, and then all of a sudden this, um, this changed very drastically. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, in 2017 went from having, or 2018 went from having like one spectrometer to like seven in the province of BC, like Toronto got a spectrometer, like, um, you know, all yeah. like all, all of a sudden there's this kind of rapid, um, you know, change, um, uh, that like, you know, wasn't, wasn't there before. And now, now it's just a present, right. It, you know, um, uh, I, I think that, uh, that like, you know, it, it almost, you know, kind of like Garth is saying it, it feels like we almost like, uh, you know, we are in the future, like they're, you know, in these post-apocalyptic times, you know, in these, uh, you know, dystopian troubled times. Uh, but then also, you know, there's this, another kind of, future as possible um uh you know that maybe is is not shitty <laughs> yeah i mean it's something that i can see i think it's something that we can all see but it's going to take a lot of work to get there i feel like it keeps stepping further and further away sometimes that's just the way that this space rolls though i think we we'll just kind of see forward and back and forward and I mean, now we're, we're seeing expansion, you know, like you talked about drug checking with spectrometry. This is something that we're working on getting expanded within the U.S. Like, um, um, and we're, you know, behind Vancouver in a lot of ways on that. But, you know, we've got famously, you know, a GCMS donated by Nan Golden in North Carolina and they're you know able to do a lot of really fantastic drug checking there but it's sad too that that's one of a tiny handful that's available for drug checking um but we're working on it there's you know a researcher that i work with that i'm working with now on a paper at uh, unc navarin dasgupta who's figured out a way to do drug checking at the university using university machines all within DEA guidelines. So, you know, sometimes it just takes being creative and persistent until you find that and can push forward for the benefit of others. <laughs> so I hope that that continues, you know, spreading and, and 
being successful and helping people take more autonomy over their drug experience. So, so it, it, I, I've, I have two, I two things to kind of just say on that is like one, I, I just had a, I, a flashback memory. So the, the to the first time I, uh, I just had a flashback memory to the first time I met Sheila Vicaria, which was in, it was in like 2015 or 20, it must've been 2016 at the, or, or 2015 at the Drug Policy Alliance Conference. Um, whenever it was, it was right after um, Justin Trudeau had been, um, uh, had won. Um, in Canada, I am not. I'm not going to hand it to Justin Trudeau to be clear. <laughs> um, but uh, um, that Justin Trudeau won, and we we're at this, you know, um, Canadian um, event uh, thing hosted by DPA, um, and uh, Ethan Nadelman, who was the um, executive director for DPA at the time, you know, is like teasing Donald McPherson, who's the lead of the Canadian that does like does Canadian drug policy stuff. Um, and helped write the the four pillars strategy like i was teasing him being like well we you know we were like what happened to canada where did canada go and now you know canada's back um and uh and and you know there was this kind of real um optimism and uh switch um and, and in terms of that like we have to fit you know the sorry uh in in terms of that we also have to frame this, you know, move towards these kind of more progressive things within the context that they're in right now, uh, which is, you know, we're both in, uh, both countries are in overdose crises. Um, even within Canada, you know, these options are still incredibly inaccessible and people are, lots of people are dying. Um, and, you know, like activists are, are worn out. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, these, these services are not all evenly available. Um, and we have to keep all that has to be kind of kept in mind, which is why, you know, sometimes Canadian activists, you know, to other places can seem a little bit like, um, like I, I've had people respond to me saying, I, I know it probably doesn't, you know, feel that, you know, doesn't feel like that, that way in Canada. Um, but like, you do have quite a, a lot of like positive things. And it's like, it, it just kind of, it's just insufficient um, in terms of, um, you know, what's going on in the day to day. Let's talk about some of the things that we've discussed talking about next. Like what are some of the other things that we want to explore in the near future? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think there's like a couple of things that um, we wanted to cover. Um, I, I've been, I, so um, I follow the, the drug futurisms. I, I go on there and check the notifications all the time uh, to, to see what people are saying. Um, and I, I've seen some requests for, um, uh, for someone wanted to do like an anarchist um, episode, which I, I would, I would love nice. to um, maybe touch on sideways at some point. Um, and uh, again, um, I, uh, I, uh, I think and, and again, I think um, at some point I'm going to, I would really like to bring on um, Zoe Dodd. Um, I also, because I know that she's working on a, a history oriented, um, 
like a drug history kind of um, thing. And, you know, her and my conversation, as I talked about in the intro episode, her and my conversation was kind of like what finally got me to, to really want to, to push this forward. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she's got some, she's got a paper, I think, on, uh, with Alexander McClelland on like anarchist harm reduction and uh, it's either HIV or hepatitis C. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, um, and, and so I think like that would be kind of a good, um, you know, there are some options kind of there. Um, yeah, let's do that. I think, (laughs) uh, uh, we also, so we're going to be doing, uh, a Latin American episode, um, next, Next. uh, or a series. I I feel like we'll probably come in and out of this. Um, I'm going to leave, uh, I'll, I'll just briefly describe the format I think we have in mind. Um, in terms of, um, so we'll be doing, uh, um, at first we'll be doing at least an initial batch with three different um, activists. Uh, so the first episode will um, hopefully focus on giving us a bit of the contextual background of, um, you know, these countries in Latin America. So the first two we'll be doing will be Mexico and we'll have two different activists from Costa Rica um, talking with us. So, you know, like we'll get like a, a general kind of sense of some of the the dynamics of Latin American drug policy that we maybe don't think about too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just for, for folks listening, um, this episode, like these episodes, we've kind of like, we have been kind of based in discussions and conversations we've had um, with these folks. They've given us some readings uh, which I still have to do, um, uh, <laughs> Same. but uh, I'll I'll wait for them to introduce themselves um, at some point. Um, and uh, who who are you gonna um, bring on? Yeah, I'm. I've invited Mallory Colbert. So she's a sex educator um, here in Austin that I worked with, and she's volunteered with Harm Reduction for many years. But she specifically has started a zine about Afrofuturism, harm reduction, um, and, you know, an Afrofuturist view of harm reduction. And her first zine is out. It's absolutely fantastic. So as soon as I read it, I was just like, absolutely, this is so cool. Um, And it's, you know, incredible. So, yeah, I'm really excited to bring on Mallory and... um, we're also going to do some pre-reading for her episodes. We want this to be, you know, as beneficial and meaty as possible when you talk to her. So that's coming up soon. Very excited for that. Um, and then we're also going to talk about drug education, right? Because you said that you have worked in the past with folks from SSDP, I think, or CSSDP who have worked on campaigns for more rational and reason-based drug education, right? Do you want to talk about that a little uh, bit? Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't asked any of them yet. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So I think like um, uh, one of the, one of the things that came out of, you know, what we were just talking about with uh, Justin Trudeau getting elected was that, you know, cannabis got legalized in Canada uh, I, I know that there's some debate with folks over, you know, whether it's prohibition 2.0 and stuff, but, you know, for all intents and purposes relative to everywhere else, it's legal. Uh, and, <laughs> and and so one of the things that kind of comes with, you know, with legalizing this is how do you, how are you going to explain this 
uh, how do you explain this to children uh, and, and young adults, um, right? Yeah. Um, because now that it's not illegal, you can't just really, you can't really do this just say no um, uh, attitude because people, you know, it's because legal. it's legal and pe people yeah. kind of know that. And so, or, you, you know, young people already knew, know this kind of stuff, but you have to really change your education um, in order to, you know, help young people make informed choices. And so it, it becomes this harm reduction oriented um, even though we don't normally think we don't talk about alcohol education for young people as if it's harm reduction, but it is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so uh, uh, what we'd like to do is probably talk with, well, there's a couple of different options. So um, I think we could talk with uh, Phil Marie, uh, who designed the Students for Sensible Drug Policy education um, courses. Those are mostly aimed at college students. So like SSD peers can take um, can take the classes. Um, and then, uh, so CSSDP made this education toolkit that is for teachers so that they know how to teach, mm -hmm. um, you know, this new curriculum. And it's very grounded in a harm reduction education framework. And so uh, Jenna, who's uh, been a, a longtime friend of mine who, um, uh, you know, did a lot of the work on the toolkit, um, I think it'd be kind of cool to bring her in uh, to, to talk about it. Um, and then uh, the other option would be to do um, uh, Kristen from uh, Dance Safe, uh, who designed Dance Safe's, uh, you know, harm reduction education, um, and talk about we could talk about the futures of education through, like, kind of either of those lenses. Um, I think. Yeah, that's super um, cool. And one of the things that's kind of like one of my pet <laughs> topics is the idea of like literally using drugs to teach about other concepts which i think is funny that people are skittish about but like i love using like drug purification like illegal drug purification to teach about you know that particular technique and chemistry um like if we teach students in college how to do distillations and extractions we use stuff that they haven't heard of before it doesn't have a lot of relevance to them and they get really bored so I was like, well, you know, if I could teach them how to like process cocaine, they would find that so much more interesting. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's still the same skill. It's still a chemical. It's still, you know, utilizing organic chemistry technique to get to a certain desired goal. Um, but, you know, that's so hard to pitch. It really is. People just get so antsy and everyone's worried that parents are going to complain. So I would love a future where we could utilize like young people's innate curiosity about drugs and like really harness that to help keep their attention in other avenues. It's just I think it's a, it continues to be a problem the more we refuse to talk about it like a part of life that it is but that would be such a cool future i would love that uh, and uh one of the other things i would uh I, so i i just saw this um i just saw this online uh just uh just yesterday um is like uh it, like uh, Karen Ward, who's a an activist in Vancouver, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, was talking about ways that the, the province of British Columbia could um, create safe supply um, mm -hmm. that um, would be a non-medicalized safe supply, but 
through the current legislative framework that already exists. Um, and I, I, I always find these, um, these futures are, I find are always really interesting um, because they're ways of, you know, maintaining prohibition while um, still trying to address, you know, these critical problems, right? Uh, so um, a country, even like the, the Netherlands, for example, the Netherlands didn't make cannabis legal what they did instead was that they removed penalties for it. Um, and so the drug itself, like making weed is, is, is illegal. Um, and, but the, 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 from my understanding, the courts have a, a general kind of recognition that in order for these coffee shops to actually have cannabis in them, they have to, uh, you know, someone has to make the weed. And so it, it ends up falling in this kind of, uh, gray area where you're technically not breaking international law, but you, you are interesting. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. or at least like the, 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 you know, this kind of spirit of the law and same with the United States, like the United States, like shouldn't be allowed to, or in Canada shouldn't be allowed to, you know, legalize drugs and States shouldn't be able to do it, except mm -hmm. the United States has, um, has a law that said that States rights Trump international law. And that they're not, the, the, the federal government's not obligated to, uh, it can't like intervene in that. And so that that's kind of the excuse from my understanding that they've given uh, to, you know, to allow these states to still have legal cannabis, despite the fact that, you know, they're one of the main creators of this international drug regime. Mm -hmm. um, we do love our uh, states, But they're not rights. breaking it federally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, but one, one of the other, uh, one of the other things that I, I thought we could talk about is maybe, um, a future that is, um, a little more present and that is already, um, happening right now. Um, so Claire, uh, you have written papers around these, uh, new non-fentanyl synthetic opioids that have been mm -hmm. coming out and I can, uh, isotone Isotonatazine? Isotonidazine. Yeah. Isotonidazine. I don't think that there's, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to police your pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> I've only ever heard isotonidazine. This is a cop free zone. It really is. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's been really interesting. And I saw it kind of brought up again. Someone was talking about etonidazine online and, and found a thread of mine and was kind of talking about that too, but it's uh, it's been interesting because they've kind of like popped up in bits here and there, but then they go back down. They haven't really ascended and stayed uh, and like stayed really present. So they just seem to kind of wax and wane um, in the past several months. However, I think it's uh, kind of an interesting harbinger, especially as we see simultaneously like the proliferation of these synthetic drugs and synthetic opioids while we're also seeing basically the vanishing of heroin in the u.s it's becoming harder and harder and harder to find actual heroin i don't know if the same is true in canada sounds like it is but at the end of the day you know it's not a great harbinger because there's a lot of there's less control there's you know there's more unknowns these drugs that we're seeing or you know, were developed in the 50s and 60s, and we didn't have any research on them. And they've got, you know, strange isomers that we don't know anything about. And um, so I, I, I guess 
I guess maybe the the that my question is um okay let's start with let's start with the history of these drugs um you know so what fentanyl gets patented in what 68 69 um, so. um uh, these drugs yeah. yeah were you know first um patented in the 1950s so what what mm -hmm. what happened here you know why you know these are synthetic opioids right they're not semi-synthetic yeah uh, which to listeners means that they're not made from they don't have a poppy at the base um yeah of them uh and, and and so, you know, this, this seems like a real win, right? If you're a country that doesn't manufacture um, its own opioids, it doesn't its own opiates. Um, so you know, you're not uh, Turkey or Australia where you're making your own poppy for medical markets. It seems like this would be a real win. Um, mm -hmm. And why why did they never really you know make a um, a bang in the market? So like the, the legal that... market, like. Right. It just seemed to not catch the interest of Janssen. So these meds were all developed by the same group of scientists that worked for Janssen uh, in the late 50s. So AKA Johnson and Johnson, and they were just shelved because they didn't have a lot of interest in them commercially. Um, and I'm not positive on the specific reasons why, but it's kind of interesting that they just kind of came up with a bunch of drugs at the time and presented them to their higher ups. And they said, nah, so they patented them and then just filed them away basically. So that's part of what is so kind of interesting about all of this is that we haven't heard a peep about these meds since the 1960s. <laughs> and then now they're being made by clandestine chemists, just following the map that was established by, you know, these Janssen scientists back in the sixties. Um, but yeah, it is interesting. Drug development is obviously a very different beast than, um, and we just approach the process more differently. Now we approach it now with a specific goal in mind, um, and work from more of an engineering perspective and it doesn't seem like it worked quite as well or quite the same way. Then it was lots of like coming up with things and seeing what sticks. Um, but yeah. You know, you would see it as being potentially good, but it just seemed to be a market choice. They were just decided to focus their marketing energy on other drugs at the time. And so, so fentanyl has, yeah, you know, doesn't have as much of a histamine response to it. Right? We covered this in the episode with yeah. with Ryan. Um, so, we, you know, when we talk about opioids, we normally, you know, the, the thing that people normally bring up is that, you know, this drug is X times stronger than morphine. Mm -hmm. But obvi obviously, these opioids have even uh, have like other um you know effects to them they have different feelings um mm -hmm. you know fentanyl feels different than heroin does um and and so you know is are there any different kind of effects that people might not be expecting from an opioid here um mm, that's a good question i don't think so like among the drugs that i'm talking about um and that's to an extent part of what makes it you know, kind of dangerous almost, I want to say, um, simply because there doesn't seem to be anything from what I've read or heard anyway, uh, where people are commenting that it feels distinct in a way that they feel confident identifying it as being in their drugs. Like if you're talking about isotinidazine, for example. And um, so between that and the fact that 
it is not detected by fentanyl test strips means that it's something that's able to kind of fly under the radar. Now, having said that, isotinidazine is so inconsistently showing up in the U.S. that there's, I wouldn't be surprised at all if it did have some kind of distinct feeling and we're just not seeing consistent reports of it because so few people are actually getting that information. So few people are actually able to do like a GCMS check and know that they have isotinidazine when they're using it. So there may be, I would be really curious to know. So, you know, hit us up on Twitter if you have comments on that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this stuff gets around fentanyl test strips, you know, which had their weaknesses to begin with, but it's diverting that. Thankfully, naloxone works on everything that we've seen so far with the exception of, you know, benzos and now um, xylazine is appearing and that does not respond to to naloxone, but yeah. Because neither of them are opioids. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they may like contribute to general sedation, which means that they can produce a greater risk of an overdose, but you're totally right. They're not specifically causing it at the cell level. They just may contribute to you being harder to wake up or having slower breathing. Um, but yeah, but I mean, it's pretty fascinating. Like the, the more we get away from poppies and into labs, it's like, there's the sky's the limit on what you can come up with. It becomes even easier to duck laws because instead of having to work on like a new way to process a poppy, you just get to go back to the chemistry drawing board and come up with something that can be made. And it's, I don't think it's as hard as people think it is certainly not easy, but it's, it's easier. It's easier to hide labs too than a field of poppies. So I don't think that the folks prohibiting everything realize that they're kind of pushing the market into an area where it's actually easier to be nimble and easier to evade detection, but that's what we got. I, I, I guess like, um, and so like what, you know, this, like you know apocalyptic uh uh future that you're 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 kind of seeing like you you think will just be uh completely uh, moved in the united states because I, I i feel like um in vancouver for quite a long time it, the general consensus was that there was just no heroin here at all mm -hmm. um there was there has been some like but it, you know who who's getting it and we know where it is like um seems to um uh, be, you know, kind of up in the air, you know, but in, in contrast, like Toronto has a completely different drug market than Vancouver does. And mm -hmm. uh, Halifax uh, and Montreal also have completely different drug markets. Um, and, and so, and they're starting to see even less heroin now as well. So it does seem to be kind of an across the board trend. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. The, Cause like in the, I'm assuming this, the case is the same for Canada, but like in the States, we have like two major supply chains in two different areas of product. So if you're in the um, Southern US or the Southwest or California, you get tar, which comes in from Mexico. And that is still mostly heroin. And we're seeing fentanyl in it now. And we're seeing a lot of other things in it, but it's harder to know if that is going to keep going the way that we've seen powder heroin up in like the Northern U S and the Northeast. 
um, where we're seeing less and less and less heroin. And I spoke to a colleague in Boston not too long ago, and they were commenting that um, the clinic that they run where everyone has to give UDSs uh, or urine drug screens, that they haven't seen 6-MAM in a while, and that's the metabolite that's detected for heroin. So, um, you know, that's good, like, objective evidence that we're, they're not seeing it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would suspect that, the, that like, the Mexican supply chain is going to eventually head that way as well. It just makes a lot of sense from a business standpoint. Um, but it's certainly seeming like we're just moving away from natural products and into, like, the pure synthetic market. It's kind of what it's looking like. And there's, I mean, there's pros to that, even from a harm reduction standpoint, but there's also cons. So it's just, it's going to be a new world and we're doing our best to adapt to it. But there's plenty um, of, you know, education and outreach, I think, to, to do just because there's, we've shifted away from a context where there's like a handful of known drugs that everyone kind of fairly well understood. And that's getting less and less true by the month. And the, you know, the gamut of what's out there is getting more and more diverse. So we've got to be able to quickly adapt with that and do the best that we can to kind of educate on some of the harms. Because I think xylazine is a great example of that. Um, it's just, it has the strangest and like, like bad and uncommon effects that I don't think people really anticipating and it scares me and there's plenty of education and outreach to be done there um, but it's one of those things where again like over and over again like it's the community that's going to end up be the saving grace it's you know if you're part of a community you notice each other's you, you notice if your neighbor is getting sick like you notice if your neighbor like it doesn't have great color has less energy than normal so it helps to be part of a community to get people taken care of earlier. So got to give my shout again to maintaining communities of drug users and supporting that. Important for many reasons. Do you know like what, like, um, what areas produce the, the opioids, like illegal opioids in Canada? Because like in the U.S., we get it from like Mexico and the Dominican Republic a lot at this point. Like, do you know what you've got up there? Um, the curiosity. I, I think it depends on the the place, and so um, I think one of the reasons Vancouver's um, supply probably shifted pretty quickly was that it was like a you know China White was like a was like a a thing, um, right? Um, uh, I think like the East Coast is mostly from Afghanistan, so mm -hmm. that's like. Um, but the, the the switch for them hap started happening before, um, started happening before um, everything. That's you know since the you know U.S. atoll uh, withdrawal <laughs> from uh, Afghanistan. Um, yeah. Uh, that was happening beforehand, and that, that might just be because it's harder to get things through um, in terms of supply chains um, as well. Um, but we also started seeing some really weird things happening at the beginning of the pandemic, like there's like heroin around again, <laughs> and uh, 
time. Like there was like opium seizures and, 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 and yeah. part of part of me you yeah, part of me just wonders if that those were actually already consistent supply chains. Um and they started um just being seized more or but people in Vancouver that I've talked to also said that they thought they could find heroin again on the streets. But now we also have this, you know, this benzo dope seems to, you know, have taken at least a consistent point of the market share. Um, and and it, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because, you know, there's always been this this talk about the, uh, you know, the iron lab prohibition that, you know, the drugs start getting just more and more potent. But what we're actually, you know, even with xylazine, um, xylazine is has uh, been around before um, mm-hmm. it, it's used in, in veterinary uh, medicine. Mm-hmm. This is not like a, you know, a, like a, an NPS that was just shelved. Yeah. Um, no, and, and now it, it's, it's making a comeback. In- yeah. And it was, you know, before it started showing up in the mainland, it was in Puerto Rico for a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, I do want to emphasize that, like, people are looking at xylazine now, but we're far from the first to do it. And we've got incredibly beneficial case reports from Puerto Rican scientists from several years ago that have been just immensely helpful. But, yeah, and it's like a different way of getting the drug, too, which I think is interesting. Because there's a lot of like, like things with isotinidazine, for example, like that's being made in labs, just clandestine labs, but xylazine is diverted. So it's being diverted from veterinary suppliers. So um, that's another interesting avenue. Like they're clearly kind of exploiting the fact that there's, I'm assuming less regulatory control over it. But if you purchase it from a veterinary avenue, like I certainly haven't tried to purchase it. From a vet, but I'm guessing that there's just less oversight than there would be for human drugs. So it's um, interesting seeing all of the different options and ways to adapt that we see out of drug sellers. Very canny people. I, I mean, I, I feel like part of it's also just like uh, responding to the, the uh, um sometimes to need. So we started, you know, we had, there's cases of benzodope in, in Vancouver going back to um, late 2018 and through 2019, um, but they were relatively inconsistent. Um, and then the pandemic started and prices, you know, um, now we think like um, fentanyl supply actually comes, uh, is, is made locally in, in mm. Canada for BC. Um, and then is it rather than being, imported because of the lockdowns and stuff like that and um and then the benzo dope was because the fentanyl was too expensive so people needed to cut it down to make it last longer whereas um in, in toronto I, I was talking with um a researcher there um named uh, jillian cola uh we were talking about this on twitter that like toronto had for a long time already had benzo dope and it wasn't a lockdown related thing um, and the way that it kind of came into the market was because fentanyl doesn't have the same duration as um, uh, fentanyl doesn't have the same duration as uh, heroin. Heroin doesn't have the legs, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and so the benzos were kind of a way of also making it feel more sedating um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, kind of closer to heroin. And so that wasn't like a that was like a, a response to like this you know, loss of heroin in the market that, uh, you know, part of it has to do with this kind of, 
you know, questions around greed, but then also part of it is just like trying to respond to consumer wants mm-hmm. um, or, or needs. Um, yeah. I've heard the same thing about xylazine or like trank dope is that it gives the fentanyl legs and that's the, that's the main, you know, desirability component there. Um, that really is an interesting way to kind of think about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is frustrating when people don't realize that there's a straight line to be drawn from hammering down on heroin and the proliferation of new potent synthetics, but it's there. (laughs) It's a very clear connection. Um, I think that's, I think, I think that's about it. Anything else you want to talk about? I don't think so. I mean, there's plenty of stuff that we could say, but, you know, hang on to it for another episode. Save the content. Yeah, um, yeah I was thinking that this... this would be a shorter one anyway. Sorry. Yeah. Um, You're going to put this where? I, I, there's something I need to add to the introduction, so I'm just going to record it now. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, one of the things uh, that I wanted to add to the show is that at the beginning of every episode, uh, we would uh, actually let me restart that. So one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we we started including um, in the episodes um, is um, corrections from the previous episodes. So uh, you know we're kind of hot, like riffing and talking, and so sometimes we say things that are not true or correct and that we can't really we don't have capacity to really edit out of the show or we've already released it um and it uh you know sometimes you got to take your lumps uh yep. you know we all make mistakes um <laughs> and uh i made one uh it's relatively minor but um i did want to just uh quickly um recognize it um i said that operation condor uh, was something that happened in the late 80s. Um, and I wasn't really sure about that. So I went and I Googled it. Um, and Operation Condor, um, the start date for that is uh, uh, 1968 unofficially um, and 1975 officially. Um, and it goes from so 1965 or 1968, sorry, um, to 1989 um, is the official kind of lock dates for that um it's not just in the 80s 90s thing i got that wrong um, well it was almost so, entirely it covered almost all of the 80s so i'll give you like yeah you were close but thank you for correcting um, we like to keep it honest <laughs> yeah all right cool so that's a cor- yeah so so that yeah that's a correction for um episode uh three I'm uh, sorry. One more time. <laughs> Can we, one, one second. <laughs> that's that's a correction for episode three. Uh, recreating the future um, with Chris Mullins. Thank you for listening to the Drug Features podcast. More information and resources about this episode are in our show notes. If you want to help us imagine a different future, you can support us at Patreon.com/slash/DrugFuturisms, or give us a good rating on iTunes, or share the podcast with a friend. After all, we can only imagine the future together. This podcast is made by Claire Zagorski and Alex Betzos. Our editor is Marcel Rambo. The art was made by Brooke Payne. And our music by Jake Goodison. And remember, 
another drug world is possible.